0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at some of the rays of hope for the workers' struggle against unfettered, exploitative capitalism, which are coming from multiple angles, as creatives in Hollywood and auto workers in Detroit are striking to demand better wages, benefits, and protections, while executives make arguments for why workers should be made to feel the threat of poverty to keep them in line. Sources today include The Rational National, The New Abnormal, Novara Media, Citations Needed, The Bradcast, The Majority Report, and Revolutionary Left Radio, with additional members-only clips from Factually with Adam Conover and More Perfect Union.
1: For the first time in history, the United Auto Workers are on strike against all three big automakers at the same time. So that is General Motors, Ford and Stellantis. And in the uh, midst of all this, the CEO of GM, Mary Barra, was on CNN and uh, was questioned on why she has seen so much of an increase in her pay compared to her workers and did not give a good answer. And I'm going to really break down just how ridiculous her answer is. First, here, a little more on uh, the strike. So, as CNN writes, the targeted strike against three plants includes fewer than 13,000 of the UAW's 145,000 workers. But union president Sean Fain has threatened to grow the strike if the automakers refuse to meet workers' demands. Automakers have scoffed at the union's call for large raises, a four day work week, and expanded pension program, among others. So, I've discussed a lot of the demands in previous videos. I'm not going to go through all that again here. But I will mention that one of the um, asks from the uh, union is, initially was a 40% pay bump, which is in line with the pay bump that these major CEOs are seeing. They have now since brought that down to, I r- believe, around 30%, but are still looking for a major pay raise because they see these ex- executives of these companies making <laughs> records amounts of money while the workers are struggling. So uh, CEO of uh, GM Mary Barr was asked about this. And uh, check out her response. And then I'm going to really break down how ridiculous her answer is.
2: The union is demanding, asking for a 40 percent wage increase over four years. They're asking for that in part because they say CEOs like yourself uh, leading the big three are making those kind of pay increases over the course of the last four years. You've seen a 34 percent pay increase in your salary. You make almost 30 million dollars. Why should your workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting leading the company. Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit-sharing aspect of it, world-class healthcare, and there's several o- other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we want to get back there and get this done. But if you're getting a 34% pay increase over four years and you're offering 20% to employees right now, do you think that's fair? Well, I think when you look at the overall, the overall structure and, and the fact that 92% is based on performance, and you look at uh, what we've been doing of sharing in the profitability when the company does well, I think uh, we've got a very compelling offer on the table.
1: 92% of her pay is tied to performance. I'm going to get to what that means in a second here and how it exposes one of the many things that are rotting at the heart of all these massive corporations. But first, just on its face, Mary Barra has seen a 34% increase in her compensation. Her workers have not seen that. At no point did she explain why that's okay, why it's okay for the CEO to see a 34% increase in her pay while the workers that are making the value in the company, the, the reason the company exists, why it's okay for them to not see that increase. No explanation there at all. Just, you know, trying to explain why she's paid what she's paid which gets to performance-based pay. 92% of our compensation is tied to performance. Now, most people, you know, maybe not knowing much about how this all works, would think, well, I guess GM's doing very well. They're not laying off any employees, right? Uh, all the workers are doing very well. They're all making a lot of... The whole company's doing so great. So because the whole company's doing fantastic, the CEO gets an increase in her pay. That's fair, right? Except that's not what's going on. GM, as I'll get to, has been laying off a lot of employees. Yet... Performance-based pay, the performance, is the performance of the stock. So if you, SGM, are buying up your own stock through stock buybacks, which is now legal, was not legal before 1980, but is now legal, then you're going to see increases in your stock because you are artificially inflating your own stock. And the reason why she wants to tie 92% of her compensation to performance to the stock is because that is not taxed the same as salary is. That's why all these CEOs never look at what their what their salary is. Look at what their total compensation is. That gives you the real idea of what they're actually making because a lot of their money is made through it being tied to the stock of the company.
3: These billionaire white CEOs were born in the wrong era in time, oh. that they really wanted to be kings. They want fiefdoms. They want, you know, bent knee and necks at their will. And that people should be grateful. As Tim grenner had said, people should be grateful to even have a job. So who cares if they're abused? Who cares if they don't have a living wage? Who cares if you need multiple jobs in order to be able to put a roof over your head? Who cares? Like you should be grateful and thankful because you are what? Replaceable. And so for, for you, Kim, when you hear these things and we recognize and there are so many stories that are being, you know, run about the younger generations, the Gen Z's who are basically saying, yeah, I saw how my parents had to work. I saw extreme loss. I'm a child of recession. I'm a child of the bubble bursting. I'm a child of our home went into foreclosure and all of these things. And I don't want to work like this for people who don't care about me, who steal from my pension, if you still have one. What do you make of how this shift that was ushered in really greatly through COVID in terms of what power workers have with this younger generation that has also seen and lived through a lot and is saying, no, we're not the ones.
4: You love to see it, right? I think it's an incredibly encouraging and necessary development. And it's going to pay off. You know, you can't put lightning back in a bottle. You can't Turn around and try and convince these younger folks, like, oh no, it, it's cool. We'll we'll fix everything. It'll be cool now. Just just please go back to work. Please don't talk to your coworkers. Don't give your boss any lip. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. And honestly, throughout history, it's always been the young people, even in different eras, even in different industries under different circumstances. I mean, the first factory strike in U.S. history. Came in 1824 and was led by young women and girls in Rhode Island who were protesting having their 12 hour work days extended to 14. And they walked out and they threw rocks at their boss's house and they got that order ascended. Some of them were as young as 15. I mean, even some of the most famous labor leaders and worker organizers we think of in American history, whether it's, you know, the farm workers union, like with Cesar Chavez and Maria Marino and Dolores Huerta, they're in their 20s. Like the young generation has always been at the forefront of pushing for change, of pushing for something better, of looking at what their parents had and were forced to endure and thinking, no, we're not the ones. Generation upon generation is built on that. And now we're just have so much more access to information and so much more connectivity. And are able to learn from all of the struggles and lessons that we can pull from those younger generations now turned older that put that work in before we got here. It just seems like such a culmination of, honestly, centuries of struggle is what we're seeing right now.
3: You know, and do you think like you're part of the writers union and it's been four months and you alluded to and I just want to make listeners aware of that. Drew Barrymore uh, had decided that she was going to bring her show, her daytime talk show back on air amid the writer's strike. And after being railed against, (laughs) I mean, like railed on social media, she came out recently and said she's going to honor the strike and she's not going to bring her show back. Some hail it as a victory. Others are like, this is cancel culture, blah, 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 blah. But after four months and, you know, reports coming out of like a Warner Brothers losing, I don't know, I think it was like $200 million or something like that since this strike has gone on. And what people are asking for is literally a quarter of what it is that they have already lost. Do you think that there is going to be a deal that is struck? Or do these studios and CEOs... Because they are so wealthy, because their power is so vast, can they wait it out and do what it is that they said when they said the quiet part out loud? They want people to lose their homes. They want people to become homeless. You yeah, know,
4: they they sure said that out in public where everyone could see it. Things like that, unforced errors like that have really led to just the sense of militancy and stubbornness and dedication among the workers who are on strike. Not only is your boss mistreating you, underpaying you, trying to devalue you, when they spin your face like that, you're going to show up in the picket line the next day, even more determined to fight. And as much capital and money and power as the studio bosses do have, they know as well as everyone else does or is realizing that they don't really have anything without the workers creating their products. This is the thing like that you can have as much money in the world as you want, but none of those people have ever done an honest day's work. They can't write a movie. They can't do any of the work that below-the-line workers who are also struggling are dealing with. Hollywood and all of its glitz and glamour and money doesn't exist without the people putting in the actual labor. And we're gonna win. It's gonna take a good while. Hopefully not much longer, but who's to say? It's gonna take a while, but we have to win. This is the thing. It's not only about wages. It's not only about working conditions, though it is, of course, about those things. So much of this fight is about this threat of AI, about people's likenesses being used without their consent or knowledge, about the way that technology has shaped the industry and how it's going to continue to shape the way workers are treated. Like, what, whatever happens with this strike is going to impact so many other industries because it's going to set a precedent. It's going to set a precedent of either do the humans win or do the robots win? It sounds like a very sci-fi, almost silly premise, but and you we've all seen the movies and nobody wants to live through the movies where the robots win. We live it just comes <laughs> no! down, <they're>, no, <laughs> Yeah, like we we've don't. all seen like like that is not a press that's a slippery slope. And as, you know, maybe facetious as that specific example might be, like it's the thing, the way that automation hollowed out industries across the American Midwest earlier on the way that the gig economy is hollowing out so many other professions this threat of ai is threatening to hollow out screenwriting and journalism and art and so many other types of labor and art and creation like this is a line in the sand and when the writers and our our siblings and seg after when they strike that's gonna set out a blueprint for the way that Hollywood and the rest of the industries were a part of just kind of act going forward like we have to set this is going to be a precedent setting strike we have to make sure the precedent is on our side
0: our ad system respects your privacy but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely we would love to have you as a member of the show Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com slash support.
5: The last few years haven't been easy on anyone. First, we had a once in a century pandemic, then a war in Europe fueled inflation everywhere. But according to one wealthy businessman, the workers of the world have got it too easy.
6: I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, theres a there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurt in the economy which is what the whole global you know the the world is trying to do the governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality and and we're seeing it i think every employer now is seeing it i mean there is definitely massive layoffs going off people might not be talking about it but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market and that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance That
5: was Australian millionaire property developer Tim Gurner speaking to a conference for investors. Now, it was pretty shocking and it's gone viral. Lots of people saying he comes across as a complete sociopath, which I think he does. I'm actually quite appreciative, um, though, that he said that because I do think he is essentially articulating what is the dominant consensus among policymakers in the capitalist world, right? And it's especially interesting because he was basically repeating verbatim a theory put forward by one of the 20th century's most influential leftist economists. So it's a guy called Michel Kalecki. He was a Polish economist and a contemporary of John Maynard Keynes, but he was more sceptical of the promise of capitalism than John Maynard Keynes. So Keynes, he believed that smart governments could manage capitalism so that full employment would be maintained and inflation would be kept low. And so you could have harmony between capitalists and, and workers, essentially. You could make capitalism work for everyone. Keynes was a big supporter of things such as the New Deal under FDR. So you sort of pump money into the economy to maintain full employment. Businesses still make profits. Workers are getting decent wages. Unemployment is low. Everyone's happy. That was Keynes' idea. I mean, I'm probably you know to somewhat, uh, to some degree simplifying it, but that's the the long and short of it. Kalecki though disagreed. He doubted that capitalists would ever accept this deal. Now, in his classic 1943 essay, Political Aspects of Full Employment, Kalecki wrote this, Full employment would cause social and political changes which would give a new impetus to the opposition of the business leaders. The sack would cease to play its role as a disciplinary measure. The social position of the boss would be undermined and the self-assurance and class consciousness of the working class would grow. Discipline in the factories and political stability are more appreciated than profits by business leaders their class instinct tells them that lasting full employment is unsound from their point of view and that unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. So Kalecki there is saying that while full employment might be technically possible within capitalism, so that's the sort of Keynes line, the politics of it won't work. And that's because bosses need to be able to control their workers and they can only control them With the threat of unemployment and ultimately the threat of poverty. Now, if you threaten your work with unemployment, but you've got quite generous unemployment payments, then yeah, that's not going to be a particularly effective disciplining mechanism. But if you threaten your workers with unemployment and also you have low unemployment benefits, then yeah, they are going to find it a little bit scary to stand up to you, right? So basically you want to put workers in a vulnerable, in a precarious situation precisely so they don't get ideas above their station. Precisely so, they have to listen to the boss and not speak back. And it's for that reason, not necessarily because of technocratic reasons such as inflation. So often you'll hear sort of, there's this trade-off between inflation and unemployment, and that's why we can't have full employment or we can't have employment to a, a very high level all the time. What Kalecki is saying is it hasn't really got anything to do with a technocratic issue about inflation. What it's got to do with is politics. It's got to do with power. It's about the power of the employer vis-a-vis the worker. And that's why, under capitalism, you'll always have precarity because they need it. Now, Rivka, I've always loved Kalecki's theories, and that property investor, to me, um, you know, lots of people criticizing him, but to me, he's demonstrated the logic of Kalecki better than any leftist academic might be able to. And for that, I'm somewhat grateful to him.
7: It's interesting that there's been so much outrage at his comments. You know, it's a mask off moment. They expose the way in which capitalism normally operates. But it kind of, in a way, shows how much faith people put in the system day to day. It's only at these moments when some random Australian dude with like a massive forehead <laughs> kind of, just lays out how the system works that people are so, um, aghast. Um, but I think, I think what's interesting is this came up actually a, a couple of weeks ago, I think when I was, um, on the show, when we, when we talked about the statistic that half of renters or more than half of renters in the UK at the moment are one paycheck away from homelessness. And I argued, and I would argue all the more so in relation to this clip that, that's by design the Tories want a housing crisis where we are all on the verge of homelessness because that disciplines the workforce and that disciplines private rental uh, private renters incredibly effectively because if we're constantly um, you know lying awake at night worried that we might be made homeless or redundant or be fired then we're not going to ask for a pay rise we're not going to ask for a rent reduction it works fantastically well I mean kalecki um, is is has theorized this um, tremendously well and, and I think it's really interesting some of the stuff you've quoted there but it's also like Marx you know Marx laid out the fact that integral to capitalism was this idea of surplus or what he called reserve humanity people that capitalism didn't need within the workforce um itself but did need in order to to discipline the working class i mean he, he argued that they were part of the working class but also kind of like almost a shadow working class there in the background to remind you that this is what you could be um if if you don't get on with your work and if you if you try and ask for more i was actually reminded of a conversation that i had with um a family member recently we were in central london and we walked past a homeless man we kind of had a discussion about um whether there should be homelessness in the UK and whether we should try and alleviate it by giving people money, um, and she was arguing, you know, if we didn't have, what would be the point of wanting to have if there weren't any have-nots? And I think that's exactly she had internalised the logic of capitalism. She was effectively saying, "It works on me. There being people in society who are marginalised, who are unemployed, who are homeless, makes me afraid enough to to work harder." And so, in a way what tim gurn is saying is is exactly correct this is integral to the function of capitalism that there's a surplus section of humanity that's there in the shadows waiting as a as a kind of grim reminder of what happens if you try and unionize if you try and do a rent strike if you try and organize in any for any kind of um people power
8: narrative circulating which we discussed that the UAW strikes threaten the electric vehicle sector because UAW were to unionize that industry and or raise labor standards and pay it would become unprofitable and die. And of course, the strikes don't involve EV plants, but they certainly are on the minds of workers. So I want to sort of start by talking about this narrative, uh, the narrative we talked about at the intro, this idea that workers think that big bad government is forcing them to be a bunch of green hippies.
3: Oh,
2: my goodness. Yes. Um, (laughs) I personally, I find this narrative, this spin job, fascinating, primarily because of how I think it's boldly dishonest, and it's glaring omission of the actual history and the dynamics at play. I don't know how anyone can even talk about the slowdown of EV production without mentioning the fact that auto executives have been actively, deliberately, and unrelentingly squashing the EV rollout and any pro-climate auto industry regulation for decades, all while suppressing global warming research since the 1960s. You know, the fact is that it wasn't auto workers who made the decision to produce polluting vehicles or to build Toxic plants in working class communities of color. You know, those decisions were made by auto industry bosses like Mary Barra, Jim Farley, and Carlos Tavares, you know, the big three auto CEOs, whose primary motive was ensuring that they could pocket millions and millions of dollars a year at any moral, societal, or planetary cost. And that's exactly what they're doing, and that's what they've done for a long time. And What this industry narrative about UAW's demands costing too much alongside the EV transition seems to neglect is the fact that auto companies are getting billions of dollars from taxpayer-funded EV subsidies to make it work. It's their responsibility to use public funding in ways that serve the public and planetary good you know, and central to that is not leaving workers and communities behind in the transition to a green economy. And if they can't figure out how to manage taxpayer money in ways that don't further immiserate taxpayers themselves, if their CEOs can't bear to part ways with some of their 20 plus million dollar salaries, why should we be trusting them with their money in the first place? Why is that money not going directly to workers and communities to figure it out for themselves? I think earlier you had mentioned this sort of Implicit pushback in the media, maybe it's explicit pushback in the media. Mm-hmm. Probably explicit pushback in the media about unionized EV jobs costing too much. Yeah. You know, to me that's honestly funny for a lot of reasons because this narrative seems to neglect the fact that the auto industry has been incredibly profitable with the unionized workforce for a very long time. The fact is that the auto industry was when it was in trouble in you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It was UAW, it was their organized workforce that made tremendous and painful sacrifices to keep the companies afloat. Their unionized workers suffered, you know, like so many of us suffered during the financial crash, while the banks and billionaires were bailed out. And the big three are repaying this unbelievable and undeserved generosity by seemingly shock doctrining under the cover of a clean energy transition to crush their unionized workforce and their underpaid non-union workers build EVs and battery engines in unsafe conditions, you know, while they pocket fat wads of government funding. I think the audacity of this dynamic and the idea that union jobs and clean energy transition are opposed, being used to pit climate activists and auto workers against each other is so maddening and ignorant of what the climate movement is actually fighting for. Does no one remember the last several years? Because I remember. You know, I remember marching, I remember rallying, I remember fighting arm in arm with hundreds and thousands of climate activists for the Green New Deal's promise of a rapid society-wide mobilization and just transition. To decarbonize the economy while creating millions of high-paying green union jobs. And we fought and are fighting for a Green New Deal, not a green gig economy, and not the auto executive's dystopian vision of the energy transition. And right now the climate movement is standing up to corporate greed. And you know, I think the climate movement is standing with UAW auto workers on strike.
9: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's something really fascinating going on, which is something you you actually just Kind of mentioned, Sydney, which is this idea that there isn't really a war between hard hat workers and environmental activists, that that's not actually a thing, but we're supposed to believe it's a thing based on the talking points of, you know, whether it is the automakers themselves or the media covering this story, that somehow the narrative is supposed to be that if you support the transition to more electric vehicles then clearly you stand against the auto workers or vice versa right that if you stand with auto workers well then you clearly you are not interested in the you know biden agenda of uh, you know every 2 out of 3 cars that go to market need to be ev and so what is always left out of this on purpose it's not merely that the tension that is being reported on is not actually the real tension. It's really just, you know, which is really about owners and workers, but what is so often left out. And you nodded to this already is the idea that the big three automakers are themselves actually like the major climate villains here. Right. That like the, all the hand wringing about, Oh, but you know, if the, if the workers are on strike that we can't make as many, Electric vehicles as we wish we could make because we care so deeply about the earth. Like, they have been fighting this for years, if not decades, deliberately. Can you talk about, like, the environmental and climate track records of these automakers, whether it's the big three or just the auto industry in general, and how they have deliberately pushed to like slow the transition to EV. But now we're supposed to think that, you know, if only they had the workers to do it, they would do this, you know, wholeheartedly, because they care so much.
2: The fact is that the climate environmental track record of the big three is atrocious. The climate movement generally, you know, we generally target oil corporations. But the reality is that historically, the auto industry has been in lockstep in waging war against any and all forms of climate regulation or environmental standards. Um, it was in 2020 that e News published a report revealing that scientists at General Motors and Ford knew as early as the 1960s that car emissions caused climate change. And when their scientists took these findings to top executives, they were ignored buried, suppressed, rather than these companies doing anything to protect the environment and humanity from life-threatening pollution that their products were creating, they spent the subsequent decades working to crush any proposed environmental standards, as well as electric vehicles themselves. In a testimony in Congress in 1967, A Ford executive argued against federal investments in electric vehicle research, arguing that the industry was actively developing EV technology and would be ready to bring electric cars to market within a decade. Yeah, exactly.
9: (laughs) To be fair, that was only 56 years ago.
10: I am uh, struck in covering all of this uh, not just with the the strength of the arguments from the auto workers but the fact that the union is striking at all three major automakers at once uh, and and that that has never been done in history is, is that right and if so what does it mean that this is happening uh now uh Nelson
11: Yes that's it's the first time that's happened ever and that arises out of both weakness and strength of the union the weakness is that pattern bargaining that is used to strike say ford mm-hmm. and then you'd move that pattern that you achieved at ford to the other uh, companies and that may not work so well partly because part of the a lot of the industry's non-union tesla for example or mm-hmm. toyota and also it 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 seems as if uh, some of the companies they just might not do it so uh, they, and the union therefore you know just has unionized a smaller proportion of the industry than it used to on the other hand, striking all three does appeal to the real increase in militancy and participation uh, of uh, union members. They all want to get in it. I mean, if you just strike one of them at a time, then the other the other people are just sitting on the by bi- on the on the uh, mm-hmm. sidelines. And this strike is designed to grow in size, uh, you know, week by week as the negotiations proceed. And um, uh, so there probably will be some more factory shutdown toward the end of this week uh, to sort of encourage the negotiators on the company side to, Mm to get going. So uh, as I understand it, this is called a selective strike. Uh,
10: the American Prospects Robert Cutner uh, describes uh, this today. Uh, he says it was a tactic pioneered 30 years ago by the flight attendants at the time. He says the tactic offers significant yeah. tactical benefits like conserving strike funds for workers, which would otherwise run out faster, uh, allowing for more targeted strikes against uh, parts of the uh, supply chain, etc. Uh, yeah. And And keeps the management off balance. Would you agree with that assessment?
11: Yeah, that's been done. It's been had down in the auto industry, actually, at, at various times in the oh, early seventies, uh, when the auto companies were thinking of, um, uh, building non-union plants in the South, uh, the, uh, at the, the UAW began to have selective strikes at General Motors. This happened other times, but the flight attendants did, did, uh, do it in 30 years ago, but it's, ha- yes, it has happened. However, this one is, 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 is a little different. It It, um, it's not designed to be a rolling strike, which means you strike a company and then they, a factory. Then they go back to work the next week, and then you now it's going to be the, the the workers are not going to go back to work. They're mm-hmm. going to stay out, and then more workers will join them, and you'll begin to get a kind of momentum there.
10: As as noted, this strike uh, comes at the at the same time as both the writers' uh, guild strike. The actors' unions have walked out here in Hollywood. Have we ever seen anything comparable to this? moment in history it seems between that and the, the you know the things that uh, you and I have been talking about over the last couple of years uh professor with the strikes at Amazon and Starbucks and so forth uh, is is it comparable to anything in history where you know so many sort of major
11: unions are either forming and or walking out at once yes, uh, in fact unfortunately. <laughs> what we have today is a pale reflection of what used to happen on a routine basis uh, uh up through about the, ni- the end of the 1970s uh so there were 10 times more strikes each year 20 times uh in in the in the period from the well from the late 30s on into the late 70s uh the early 1970s were just full of strikes uh, auto strikes uh, post office strikes uh, 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 uh strikes of airline uh, employees mm-hmm. the uh, uh in this and and the, the, the 70 even as late as the uh, mid 70s or big auto strikes and steel strikes. Uh, Yes, they they had. Now, now there's a certain excitement about it here because the unions have been in the doldrums, uh, management's in the driver's seat, and there is clearly a a sense of militancy and and, and excitement. And and also new workers like graduate students and uh, museum employees and Mm -hmm. uh, some retail workers would, you know, have to have, Gone on gone either formed unions or gone on strike, but uh, in, back in the you know, for 30, 40 years, uh, you know, between the late 30s and the 70s, you know, the, uh, the there'll be just, just looking at the strike statistics, they were 10 times as high, uh, as this. And, the, and of mm-hmm. course, in the great post war strike wave of 45, 46, there were probably a thousand times more workers on strike mm-hmm. and many more unions. Um, uh, so, so, but on the other hand, I mean, there's a lot of spirit. And there's a lot of excitement, and there's a public support for unions is very widespread, uh, and uh, there are some new unions are trying to form uh, against management hostility. But so, so it's not like nothing is happening. But I just mm-hmm. want to make just just give you the dimensions here. Yeah, uh, you, you know, in 1970, when the UAW struck just General Motors mm-hmm. alone, there were 400,000 workers on strike mm. for two months in the fall of 1970.
10: Do you expect that we might see something like that, where the uh, where all the Plants are at all three of the automakers are uh, yeah, shut well, down at be, once. Yes, it
11: could be. Yes, if if the the union uh, uh, wants to uh, handcuff And I, Let me just say one thing. I think that, that you you mentioned uh, obviously these the uh, union wants you know thirty or forty percent mm-hmm. wage increase. The management's gotten that. They're making lots of profits. That's all true. Uh, and I think the union is making progress on on just simply getting a wage increase to make up for really concessions they offered in the past. But what's really a sticking point here? Is and it's not exactly a a kind of how should I put it legitimate part of the negotiations because the companies say we aren't we aren't going to negotiate about this. It has to do with the new plants that will be open mainly in the south Mm -hmm. to build batteries and all the all the companies and then also the Toyotas and Nissans and Teslas for that matter are building these battery plants and off many of them are joint ventures meaning you know. Partly Korean or or, or Taiwanese or mm-hmm. something, and the companies say, "Oh, they, you know, this is not part of the agreement. We aren't bargaining over that." In fact, many of the workers haven't even been employed. They haven't they haven't built the plants. They haven't been employed, but. If we're going to have a green transition, if we're going to have electric vehicles, the mm-hmm. wave of the future, uh, and you're going to have a, a, a workforce, which is, you know, paid at the, at the level of that, you know, manu- auto unionized auto workers have traditionally gotten, mm-hmm. you know, you need to reach some settlement here on the, uh, some agreement on the, on the, these battery plants. And, and the, and one thing that makes it possible is the federal government is providing really, uh, I think uh, tens of billions of yeah. dollars. In incentives to do that. Yeah. So there's a good leverage there. And one reason that Fain uh, properly is saying, uh, you know, we want Biden to earn our endorsement, we aren't going to get, is they expect the Biden administration, which is providing all of these billions of dollars, our ta- tax dollars passed in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, they want Biden to, say, to tell these, uh, um, auto companies, look, you want this money? You want these subsidies? You want these loans? Well, we expect you to have unionized, you know, good wage, mm-hmm. uh, plants that you're building all over the South. Now that's a, that's tough because some of these plants, some of these companies that are building these plants are, um, uh, non-union right now, like Toyota or Tesla. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is this is this is where the crunch is going to come, and uh, and the, and if the union decides that it makes it clear that this is, it it really wants some agreement on that, then we're going to have a long strike.
12: Democrats are aware that. Uh, the National Labor Relations Act has been steadily weakened by court decisions and uh, uh, some of the NLRB rulings when they were controlled by Republicans. Uh, And they've been trying to strengthen uh, labor law basically all the way back to Lyndon Johnson's presidency. And every time they've tried under Johnson, under Carter, under Clinton, under Obama, they have never gotten to 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, so, uh, it, as a result, when in, in the private sector, when workers try to unionize, it's a very, very common practice for employers to do things that are illegal, according to the National Labor Relations Act, uh, like firing the workers who are leading the campaign to unionize, for which the penalties are virtually non-existent. And because this has been completely the norm uh, increasingly for the last 40 years, uh, most unions have ceased doing major organizing campaigns. Uh, I remember when John Sweeney was running for the presidency, the AFL-CIO in 1995, one of his talking points was that the uh, if you added up all the unions and looked at their budgets, they were spending about 3% of their budgets on organizing because they knew they would lose. All right. Uh, The new, not new, but Biden's appointee, confirmed by the Senate as general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, and she is basically the boss of all 500 lawyers working for the board across the country, Jennifer Abruzzo, has been determined to, uh, as much as it is possible, restore that original National Labor Relations Act, which was written to give workers the right to collectively bargain, restore it to, you know, the point at which it was effective. Um, she put that out in a memo shortly after she took office in a memo to her lawyers and she got a case that she brought before the board, which the board uh, issued the, this Semix decision on Friday. What the decision says is if enough workers to constitute a majority uh, have made clear they wish to affiliate with a union by signing cards or some other measure, the employer then has a choice. The employer can voluntarily recognize the union, which 99.9% of the time the employer will not do, or the employer is legally obligated to file for a, board, uh, a board-run election. Then, here's the teeth in the decision, then if the employer commits an unfair labor practice, the very sorts of things they routinely commit by uh, forcing workers to go to propaganda meetings that are anti-union, by firing uh, pro-union workers and so on, those are unfair labor practices, but there's been no penalty. In this case, if the employer during the run-up to the election or during the election itself commits an unfair labor practice, wham, the union is immediately recognized and uh, the company is ordered immediately to commence bargaining with the union. That is a huge change.
13: Okay, so prior to this, let's just go like, because one of the examples I used yesterday was Bessemer. When uh, Amazon workers at Bessemer, Alabama, I think it was, it was a warehouse- Um they they signed uh cards they want to get a union so they uh they apply essentially to National Labor Relations Board the National Labor Relations Board looks at those cards determines that they're valid and says okay we're going to issue uh an election right because Amazon obviously does not want to have a union right right and then the in the election uh, is always like, was like, how long out was there are, there? are there constraints on
12: how long out that election has to take place within? Ab- absolutely not. And delay is a common tactic of employers who do not, uh, you know, want to have a union. Uh, it can be delayed. And, you know, the more you delay it, uh, you know, the, 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 the less workers generally uh, are determined still to push through. And in the case of Amazon, where the average Amazon warehouse worker lasts about eight months on the job before the demands of the job, which are ridiculous, just wears that worker out and he or she quits. Uh, you know, a, a delay is fatal, but it's Plus, plus the they also,
13: I mean, what Amazon does, they bring in managers from all around the country. They, they All of a sudden, it's like three managers for every worker there for a, you know a brief period of time. I'm exaggerating, but only slightly, um and they bring in young union buster lawyers and they bring in union busting teams and they do and they start to intimidate people and they do all this and they and and so the uh, in Bessemer the election happens but afterwards the union uh or the would be union files grievances and the National Labor Relations Board says we recognize these grievances and they call for another election and they end up losing that election but now once they got to that point where they recognized the uh, unfair labor practices,
12: boom, the union exists. Boom and second boom, the company is ordered to go to the bargaining table with the union.
8: If you want to know what you can do to help... Be part of that groundwork. Talk to your coworkers. Even if you can't unionize, just break that barrier that normally keeps you and your fellow worker from talking openly about how much your situation sucks and how much screwed you actually are being, and how much you are being screwed over by your bosses, by your landlords, by your politicians, and what a solution to that would look like. A solution that actually harnesses the pain and the power of working people brought together. You know, what could that Look like well, we don't know necessarily what it would look like here in the United States in the 21st century. But we can all be doing that tilling work to build those relationships across racial, political, gender, you know, locational difference. We can do what we can to start building a more cohesive sense of class of class itself and class consciousness among our fellow workers. We can do our best to sort of deprogram ourselves and our neighbors and our coworkers from all the ruling class propaganda that, that is beaten into our heads from birth. Now, as I said, is this an explicitly socialist movement? Is this going to lead to an explicitly socialist politics? Um, No, maybe kind of some, sometimes, sometimes not you know but but what i want to emphasize is that this right here this is the historical froth from which a socialist movement can be born yes by which i mean a movement of working people that fights for working people and believes the people who make you know society run should run society yes and that's us It's not the parasitic oligarchs and corporations and their bought off politicians vampirically sucking out all of the wealth that we create for them and then using that fucking money and the power that comes with it to pillage the rest of the globe through 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 military conflict or or financial occupation and domination. And that movement begins and lives, I think, everywhere. Regular people start fighting back and fighting for a better life. And we start fighting together and building power in our numbers, in our organizational capacities to sustain a working people's movement. That needs to attack on all fronts. Like that, this is what we can do to help be, be part of building that movement and be part of that full frontal attack where we need to go on the offensive in our workplaces, telling our bosses, Hey, you can't treat me like that. You can't talk to me like that. I deserve better than this, but we also need it even in our own unions as the UAW has shown us. If your union local sucks, you need to reform that union. You need to get the assholes who are in there and not serving the members out. And you need to take control of it and make it a weapon for the rank and file. But you need to also run for school boards, get like you need to go at these Moms for Liberty weirdos and all these (laughs) nutjobs who are trying to take power wherever they can in our city governments, in our state legislatures and in Washington, D.C. The point is that we need to start building power and winning. And when we start doing that. Where it goes from there, you know, is really up to us. That's what I want to lead people with. What ha- what happens next depends on what we do now. But everywhere you look, there is a front to be fought upon. Mm. So pick your battles and let's go win
14: this fucking thing. Mm. Amen. I just want to add one last thing. You just killed it ending out, Max. Yes. I love everything you said. You're absolutely right. But I just want to say on the other side, you know, you're listening to this great podcast right now. There's mainstream media right now, hard at work, scaremongering, trying to, you know, putting, putting out corporate talking points. Mm-hmm. They emphasize how much damage might be done to the economy and what, what they really mean is the company's profits. And, I, and, you know, this is unfortunately really, really convincing to a lot of people. Um, you know, they, the mainstream media have shown they don't particularly care about the needs of working people. But we're at a really unprecedented moment where those corporate talking points are kind of cracking in, in people's minds, mm-hmm. They're starting to understand people kind of understand that they're wrong. You know, that the damage that will be done to working in America will be much higher if the auto workers don't fight for a better contract and set the standards that will raise the livelihoods of all of us, you know, and then we're seeing right now, 75% public support of the strikers. People know which side they're on. Um, but it's always important to help them out a little bit, push back on the mainstream media narratives. They're endlessly fed. Um, and so within, in the workplace, uh, with your family, wherever, um, start talking about it. Cause this is, this really is a seize the moment to moment.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with the Rational National breaking down the nonsense arguments for why executives should get raises at higher rates than workers who create real value. The New Abnormal discussed the dynamics of the writer's strike. Navarra Media highlighted the CEO who actually said exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. Citations Needed critiqued the media going along with the idea that the auto workers' strike is hurting the transition to electric vehicles. The broadcast looked back into the history of unionization. The Majority Report discussed Biden's National Labor Relations Board, which has made unionization easier. And Revolutionary Left Radio discussed the future of the labor movement with cautious optimism. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard two additional bonus clips. The first from Factually with Adam Conover, which hosted a conversation about strip club workers struggling to unionize.
2: We were really lucky to have had other strikes across America within strip clubs and also the Leslie Ladies to kind of guide us in everything that we were doing. And, yeah, it feels powerful to know that, like, the quote-unquote sisterhood of, like, strippers across the world exercising their rights exists. And, yeah. yeah, we got to follow footsteps.
0: And more Perfect Union doing a quick report on the visual effects workers at Marvel also pushing to unionize.
11: This is about visual effects workers, you know, throughout the industry, demanding respect for the work that they do. But you know, especially for Marvel workers, where we couldn't have superheroes flying, or battling, or fighting, or morphing, or anything without visual effects. So when you have a whole brand that really does rely upon the work that we do, I think that really speaks to the reasonableness of what we're talking about,
14: right?
0: to hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members only podcast feed that you'll receive sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com/support or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information now additional episodes of best of the left you may want to check out for more context include number 1463 people are waking back up to the need for labor unions. That's from December 2021. And that one's interesting because it goes back into deep labor history to give better context for the struggles happening today. And 1557, tactics and counter tactics of the struggle for labor rights. That's from May of this year, 2023. And it's a bit similar in that it looks at history for context, but this time with a focus on labor tactics and, of course, management counter-tactics that have been around for ages. All worth your time. Again, those were episodes 1463 and 1557. Now, to wrap up, I have a few thoughts. Uh, The first is that news today breaking, basically, as I'm putting the show together, Biden is the first president to ever uh, go to a picket line which is exciting and new, it's never happened before. And it's obviously also about politics. And it's also obviously about economics and labor. It's just impossible for a president to separate the two. But in addition to the politics, it's also progress. So I'll take it. And maybe it'll help him carry Michigan in 2024. Maybe it'll help the workers in their negotiations. What I recall for sure is how annoyed I was when Obama said that he'd put on his walking shoes and joined the striking workers, but never showed up. So, progress. Uh, Next thing, this is just an amusing note. Uh, I was reading about Biden's visit to Michigan on pbs.org, and I came across this just little section of, uh, of an article toward the bottom. It says, Dave Ellis, who stocks parts at the distribution center, said he's happy Biden wants to show people he's behind the middle class. But he said the visit is just about getting more votes. quote. "I don't necessarily believe that it's really about us," said Ellis, who argued that Trump would be a better president for the middle class than Biden, because Trump is a businessman," end quote. And I know I don't really need to tell this audience why running a business isn't necessarily a good indicator of how good of an elected leader a person would be, but really? In this context, it's pretty stunning to hear that old talking point being regurgitated like that. This guy, Dave Ellis, is striking to be treated better by his employers, who are, not so shockingly, businessmen and women. In fact, every time working people who constitute the middle class try to improve their lot in life economically, it's always the business people who are standing in the way. So it really is a marvel of propaganda that anyone in the whole wide world could be convinced that electing business people to office would sort of magically be good for the working class when any rational analysis of that relationship should be of natural enemies. Last note on how... Issues like labor and economics and fairness get framed. I've been waiting to tell this story for a little while, and I think it fits here. I had a thought recently about that old question of whether it's moral to steal a loaf of bread to feed a starving family. And I have no idea what made me think of this, but suddenly I had a thought about how that moral question is framed in a very narrow and uncomfortable way. Because, I mean, my whole life I've heard that question and I've sort of struggled, like, I don't know, like, I mean, probably yes, right? But I mean, I, and I sort of go back and forth. So I told Amanda about my thoughts and, and sort of argued that it's asking the wrong question. We need to ask a, a totally different question. She said, oh, yeah, I, I think I saw something like that on social media recently. Let me see if I can find it. And it turned out that it was basically, it was like a socialist meme or some such that reframed the question as to whether it was moral for a baker to hoard bread when people are starving. And I thought, closer, but no, that's still not it. That's that's still the same BS, overly narrow framing of the question. It's just seen from the opposite perspective. The real moral quandary is whether it's moral for a society with abundance to allow individuals to starve so that they're forced to decide whether or not to steal to feed their family or for a baker to have to decide whether they individually can afford to give away free bread. The whole question focuses so much on the individuals involved that it completely ignores the larger structural forces at play and the potential for larger forces like government to do good in individual people's lives. And instead, it puts that moral onus on the individual themselves. And this is why framing is such a powerful rhetorical tool. It's so much easier to simply go along with the question as it's framed than to question it On a fundamental level, but this is what we have to do to make fundamental change, like in the worker and management conflict, to remove exploitation altogether, rather than just get slightly better treatment in a fundamentally exploitative system. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999 at 3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Lewindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support. You can join them by signing up today and it would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to join our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional Wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Bestoftheleft.com.